The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason Deroshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. Deroshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. The prophet Zephaniah was convinced that what we hope for tomorrow, or what we dread tomorrow, should change we are today. God intends that his promises of both curse and blessing should motivate Godward surrender. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 1.4, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. Zephaniah employed both dread and hope to awaken his audience to return to the basics of Yahwistic messianic faith. So in our first lecture, we focused on how he uses the day of the Lord as punishment to motivate people to seek the Lord together. Here, we're going to consider how he uses the day of the Lord as renewal and new creation to motivate people to wait for him in persevering trust, seeking God together and waiting for him to act will result, will result in lasting joy tomorrow, both for those the Savior saves and for the Savior himself. So let's pray again and ask God for help. Sovereign Yahweh, this book says you are the God of armies. And in the end, you will decimate every spiritual and physical power that stands against you. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Magnify your son, I pray, through this lecture. Amen. My goal in this lecture is twofold. I want to overview the charge to wait for the Lord and the promises that Zephaniah uses to motivate that charge. And then, second, I want to consider how it is that Christ fulfills Zephaniah's vision of the Lord's Day, and what this means about the timing and nature of the realization of Zephaniah's hopes today. So we open here with the substance of the Savior's invitation to satisfaction, stage two. Wait for the Lord. In Zephaniah 2, 5 through 3, 7, the prophet bemoans the state and fate of the rebels from Israel's neighbors and Jerusalem herself. Both of those lament sections begin with the word woe. We didn't get to focus on them much in our previous lecture, but they provide the foundation for the logic that begins in Zephaniah 3, verse 8. Not only this, at the end of chapter, or in the beginning of chapter 3, the woe section devoted to Jerusalem addresses Jerusalem in feminine singular terms. It, it personifies the city. Look with me at chapter 3. Verse 1, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled 
the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. The she there is the city and all the wicked that fill her. Look at 3, 7. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I had appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The you there is feminine singular. In contrast, when we read in chapter 3, verse 8, therefore, wait for me. The wait is not feminine singular. There's a major shift, I believe, at 3.8. It's not apparent in my ESV and where they put the heading, but I believe there's a major break at 3.8, and that here, Zephaniah, Yahweh through Zephaniah, returns to talking about the remnant. The masculine plural wait for me, recalls the masculine plural imperatives in 2, 1, and 3. Seek the Lord together. And I think that now we are recalling the remnant, and the urge is that they would wait. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this verb to wait is never used negatively. So while it might sound like this is a warning to a rebellious Judah. If you just read the English of 3.7 and move it right into 3.8, I said, surely you will fear me. You'll accept correction according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they are eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me. What we miss is that in the Hebrew, there's a clear signal through the shift from feminine singular to masculine plural, that we're talking about a different group. And never is this verb to wait used negatively. So, for example, in Psalm 33, verse 20, we read, Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our shield. He is our help. It's in that sense that I think the remnant, the faithful remnant from Judah and beyond, is being called to wait for the Lord. So the logic, as I understand it in the book, is this. Initial commands, seek the Lord together. Why? The reason in the two woe sections. Because of the negative state and fate of the rebels. And because of the negative state and fate of the rebels, therefore, remnant, wait for me. This is stage two of the Savior's invitation to satisfaction. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of darkness, when sin runs rampant, remnant of God, hear me. Wait for the Lord, for the day of his rising. We now get two reasons why they should wait for the Lord. Both of these reasons begin with the conjunction for. And positively, in my ESV at least, they are both translated in the text. First reason, look at verse 8. Wait for the Lord, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. 
the first reason that the remnant of faithful is to persist in their hope of salvation is because God still intends to punish the wicked. Don't think that I've forgotten. I know that it's hard all around you, and yet know this, I still intend to act. I will act decisively on your behalf, so keep trusting me. Keep waiting for me. Although at present, injustice still reigns, like those who prepare sheaves for threshing, the Lord is determined to gather, to gather all the people groups, nations, to gather all the political powers, kingdoms, for, and he will gather them for judicial assessment. And in that time, the wicked will perish. His molten jealousy for the honor of his name will finally pour out, it says. And when it does, it will, dis it will dissolve all that is hostile to him. Here, Zephaniah uses the same imagery that we saw back in 1.7 and 1.18, this image of sacrifice. And now all the nations of the world have become the sacrifice of God. He will consume his enemies. And because the coming punishment is certain, the remnant in Judah and beyond must continue to wait in hope, confident that God will act. Second reason why they need to wait for the Lord, why the remnant of faithful must patiently pursue God. Zephaniah 3, 9. Notice again, it starts with four. Here's the logic. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up, for at that time, the very time of the great judicial ingathering, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So the prophet here envisions that some of the peoples, note the plural, some of the peoples will not be destroyed in Yahweh's fires of wrath, but will instead be transformed into a community of worshipers. Specifically, God says he will purify their speech. Or as the Septuagint renders it, he'll change their tongue. So that they will, with one voice, call upon the name of the Lord so that they can also serve him shoulder to shoulder as partners. To call on Yahweh's name is to outwardly express a worshipful dependence on him as Savior, King, and treasure. Consider Psalm 116. Then I called on the name Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name Yahweh. I'll offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name Yahweh, Psalm 116. The prophets often link calling on the name of the Lord with this day of the Lord and the age of the Messiah's rise. For example, in the days when the <coughs> child king arises in power and initiates a global second exodus, Isaiah 11 and 12. This is what Isaiah asserts in Isaiah 12, 4. And you will say in that day, 
Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Similarly, in the very text that Peter cites at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we read in Joel 2, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The day of the Lord. It not only includes punishment, it includes new creation. The transforming of one's hostile peoples from the nations and the kingdoms of mankind will become, they'll they'll become new servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they'll call out to him for help and in thanksgiving and praise. They may smell like smoke, but their, their lives have been preserved because of their only Savior, Sovereign and Satisfier. Now what we read next shows that Zephaniah is actually envisioning a, a reversal of past punishment. Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, those peoples from verse 9, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Like priests, they will gather to the presence of God in Jerusalem. From as far a region as Cush. Now, Cush was the center of Black Africa, as I noted in Lecture 1. This is part of Zephaniah's heritage. It's in modern Sudan, and the rivers are likely the White and Blue Nile. Now, the region of Cush and the people associated it were named after Cush, Noah's grandson, through Ham. Now, Cush's son, Nimrod, is the one that built ancient Babel, or Babylon. So there's a direct connection between the Tower of Babel and Cush. And once the tower was judged, peoples dispersed and the Cushites traveled to the south. We learn about Cush first in Genesis chapter 2 because it's one of the locations where the four rivers that flowed out of Eden uh, went to, the rivers of life, landed in Cush. So here it's as if you have this, what, what Zephaniah is envisioning is that the, those that once, uh, those descended from Eden, exiled from Eden, are now following the rivers of life back up to their source and encountering God, no longer as rebels, but as worshipers, new followers of the great king. And these worshipers are made up of a multi-ethnic group from the peoples of the world, all of whom have transformed tongue, new speech patterns that call on Yahweh's name. Now, you'll remember at the Tower of Babel that the problem was a name issue. The 
Those at Babel were seeking their own name. And so God decided to confuse their tongue or lip, their language, and then disperse them throughout the world. Indeed, the only other place in the Old Testament where name and tongue and disperse, the same verb is used, is Genesis chapter 11. So what I think we're seeing here is what's being envisioned is a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. Back in Zephaniah 2, 11 and 12, God declared punishment on Cush. But here he predicts that even the most distant lands upon which he has poured his wrath are going to have a remnant of worshipers whom God's presence will compel to a transformed Jerusalem, thus reversing the curse of Babel. Now, how about promises that are used to motivate waiting? Two reasons have been given why they need to wait. Wait because I'm going to punish evil. Wait because I'm going to transform and shape a global remnant. Now we get two sets of promises designed to motivate this waiting. And each of the promises, just like um, in the previous stage one unit that had two woe sections, now we get two at that time sections or on that day sections. Notice 3, 11 through 13 first. On that day that God rises as judge, on that day, Yahweh will not shame the new Jerusalem. Then jump down to verse 16. On that day, it's, it, I believe, is in parallel with 11 through 13. On that same day, when God rises as witness to all the atrocities in, this wor- in the world, on that day, the Lord will completely save his remnant. These two units, 3, 11 through 13, and 16 through 20, frame verses 14 and 15, which are intrusive, with a three, a, a three groups of imperatives that provide a motivational high point in the book. We're going to walk through each of these units now. Let's start in Verse 11, to stimulate patient trust, wait for me, wait for me. Yahweh announces that despite Jerusalem's previous rebellion and corruption, the transformed city will not remain before him in a shameful state. This is because in Jerusalem, he will remove the proud and preserve the humble. Look with me at verse 11. On that day, the very day of verse 8, on that day, you, feminine singular again, but now it's referring to the transformed Jerusalem to which the multi-ethnic peoples in verse 10 gathered. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst all your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in all my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, 
they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So as I said, the you in 311 is feminine singular. It addresses the city of Jerusalem. This is where the multi-ethnic worshipers from 310 have gathered. God promises to forever erase pride by expelling the haughty and the self-reliant. They're not going to be in his presence. They're not going to be at his holy mountain. Additionally, he's going to leave an afflicted and a needy people. My, N my ESV calls them humble and lowly. And they are going to seek refuge in the name Yahweh. Where God is, there is security. Now, because a multi-ethnic community of worshipers gathered to God's presence in 3, 9, and 10, this global transformed remnant, I believe, is what makes up those who are left in Israel. The great gathering has come. The fires of God's judgment have been poured out. And those that are left include a multi-ethnic band who Psalm 87 tells us have gotten new birth certificates. This one was born there. Those from Egypt, those from Cush, those from Moab and Philistia. They've gained new identities. They make up the new remnant of the people of God, this multi-ethnic group from verses 9 and 10. That is the remnant of this new Israel has been transformed to include an omni-ethnic people. With God having purified them, they shall walk in justice and truth. It says they will not commit injustice. There will be no lies. No deceit will be found on their tongue. Turning from sin, they'll experience rest with no one to make them afraid. No more fear. Zephaniah is excited. And at this vision of glory, all of a sudden he erupts and in, in some, with some intrusive speech in verse 14. He gives three groups of four imperatives. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments from you. He has cleared away your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Four imperatives urging this transformed remnant to praise. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult. Those who in 310 are called the daughter of my dispersed ones, this distant offspring of those once scattered at the Tower of Babel, that same remnant up there in verse 10 called the daughter of my dispersed ones are now called the daughter of Zion, Israel, the daughter of Jerusalem. There's both 
continuity with the original people of God and discontinuity between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. The new Israel descends from the earlier Zion, it's the daughter, and yet it's now been transformed and includes peoples from all across the planet. Why should this changed remnant rejoice? We get two unmarked reasons that, that ground the call to sing. <clears throat> First, the Lord has removed the curse of enemy oppression. And second, the Lord's presence is with them. Now, what's striking in 315 is rather than treating the coming wrath as future, 315 acts as though the wrath of God has already come. The rest of the book, Judgment Day, is future. Wait for that future day. But here, it's as if that judgment is so certain, it's as if it's already accomplished. That's how much God's people can rest. Look at 315. The Lord has taken away the judgments from you. He has cleared away your enemy. It's as if it's already accomplished. The shift is unexpected, and it identifies that for Zephaniah, the future salvation is so certain that it should create present joy even amidst the pain, even amidst the waiting, even amidst having injustice all around them. They should be rejoicing now. Zephaniah's audience is, is still awaiting the day of the Lord. But they can delight today with the certainty that tomorrow is already secure. The day when there will be no more oppression, no more injustice, <clears throat> no more sickness. It is so certain that they should start singing already. They must rejoice in hope. That's the overarching title of my lectures. They're waiting for God to act, but in the process, they can rest. Why? Because the King of Israel, the Lord, is in their midst. They need not fear. By calling Yahweh the King of Israel, it identifies that he is sovereign over all things. Back in 2, verse 11, he's the one who will famish all the gods of the earth. There is no spiritual power, no physical power that can stand against him. And because he's in the midst of Jerusalem, she need not fear evil. Now we come to the last unit, verse 16 through 20. It repeats the phrase, on that day. And by this adds a second promise to motivate faithful waiting. Here we have a future speech that whenever the day of the Lord comes, that God is going to raise up an unnamed messenger who is going to proclaim words of hope to the transformed new Jerusalem. And then verses 19 and 20, I believe, are not part of that speech, but part of the future prediction again. Let's look at the text beginning in verse 16. On that day, the very day of Yahweh's rising, as punisher and as establisher of a new creation, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, 
O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors. I'll save the lame and gather the outcast. I'll change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned in praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So on that day, when the Lord reestablishes order in his world, on that day, there's this unnamed messenger who will enter in and proclaim to Jerusalem, fear not. You neither need to feel afraid and you don't need to act fearfully. That is, let not your hands grow weak. And why do they need to not fear? Because the saving warrior will be both with them and readying to deliver. Now, <clears throat> this saving warrior then, line for line, will match the rejoicing of verse 14. He will rejoice. He will quiet. He will exult. The day of the Lord includes not only the remnant's joy in Yahweh and in his salvation, but Yahweh's joy in those that he saves. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but it's, it's very present. We are in the midst of the day of the Lord. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, fear not. Now, what that means is that the day of the Lord is going to come, according to Zephaniah, in stages. There's an all-readiness to the day. When it comes, God's presence will be with them, but there will still be, apparently, a period in which those God seeks to save will still be in the presence of opposition that could cause them to fear and that will require a messenger to actually say, fear not. It's not that the day of the Lord is still coming. No, they're in the day. On that very day, there is going to be an overlap of the ages, wherein the saving warrior will be present, but he will not have saved completely. <laughs> and yet his presence in their midst will let them know absolute confidently that he will act. So they need not fear, even though the enemies are still there. So there is this, this um, progress to the day of the Lord. The Hebrew of verse 18 is difficult, but what is absolutely clear is the fact that the text actually says, I have gathered rather than I will gather. I have gathered. So what this suggests to me is that 318 
um, is actually bringing the future speech to an end. And God is declaring that he's already inaugurated the great ingathering. The day will begin with a great ingathering of the nations, some for punishment, some for transformation. And he'll, he's declaring, I've already gathered them in, and yet I haven't saved you completely. There is an alreadiness and a not yetness to this day. And then when we get to verse 19, he returns to that future speech. Behold, at that time, Yahweh pledges to save Jerusalem. Behold, at that future day, which is not here yet, now we're back to Zephaniah's time period, God says, I will save. I will remove your oppressors, Jerusalem, feminine singular, your oppressors. I'll save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. He's not only going to honor them, but their own lives are going to display his greatness, his fame, his name, his renown. Zephaniah 3.20 then reaffirms this great ingathering in personal terms. What 3.18 declares as accomplished, he has gathered. When we're in 19 and 20, it's still all future. It says in 3.20, in personal terms, he, those who um, have sought the Lord and have waited for the Lord are the very ones whom, whom God will exalt among all the peoples of the earth. He'll restore their fortunes, thus fulfilling his ancient promise from Deuteronomy 30. He will do so in a way that the very remnant of Zephaniah's day will experience it for themselves. It'll happen before their very eyes. So this is a grand vision of the day of the Lord, not portraying it as punishment. We got that earlier in the book. Now it's portrayed as renewal, as transformation, such that Martin Luther could say there's no book in the Minor Prophets that so gloriously portrays the Messianic age. So where do we place the fulfillment of this within salvation history? That's where I want to focus next. Does it only relate to Christ's second coming, or is there any sense in which it relates to the church age and where we're living now? And I believe it does. So Christ's saving work and the church age as initially fulfilling Zephaniah's day of Yahweh. So let's go back and begin at Zephaniah 3, 8 through 10, as we consider this question. What we read in verses 9 and 10 is that God will develop his new creational multi-ethnic community at that time. Namely, at the day of the Lord, when the fires of God's wrath pour out against the nations and the kingdoms of the earth, against all rebellion that stood against him. And as we saw in lecture one, the Apostle Paul envisions this day to still be future when he asserts that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 1. Peter 2, 
highlights the future unexpected nature of the day when he says the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He then notes that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there's no question that the day of the Lord is future. But while in one sense, Yahweh's day is indeed still ahead of us in another very real sense, I believe. For those who are in Christ, the day of the Lord has already come. The day of punishment for us has passed as the fires of God's wrath were poured out on Christ at the cross. And with that, the inauguration of the new creation that Zephaniah himself envisioned. Peter declared that all the prophets foretold Christ's sufferings, Acts 3.18. So we need to look in this book and assess where is it that Zephaniah foretold Christ's sufferings. And not only that, Peter says in 3.24 of Acts that this day, the very day of the church, was also foreseen by all the prophets. So where do we go for such a vision. Zephaniah never explicitly mentions Jesus's coming, but I believe he foresaw the Messiah and his mission in at least two ways. Number one, Zephaniah portrays the day of the Lord as God's sacrifice, a sacrifice by which he satisfies his wrath and gains victory over all evil. In Jesus's first coming, he stands as the object of God's wrath, and in his second coming, he serves as the agent of God's wrath, all on behalf of the elect. And number two, Zephaniah envisions the church age, wherein Christ's death initially fulfills Zephaniah's vision of the day of wrath, and then inaugurates the multi-ethnic ingathering of worshipers at the end of the age. So let's consider each of these elements. Number one, recognize that Christ's sacrificial death initiates the day of the Lord for the elect. So in the first lecture, we saw that for Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is a time of war when Yahweh will pour out his wrath on the rebellious of the earth. The prophet even portrayed the enemies of God as a sacrifice, ready to be consumed. Right order exists only where God is exalted over all, and it's his just jealousy that moves him to reestablish right order by overcoming evil. He accomplishes this only by the killing of the sinner or by the killing of the substitute. So as we already saw in Chapter 3, verse 2, by failing to draw near to God, especially through his provision of a substitute, those in Judah and beyond had actually prepared themselves to be the sacrifice. Yet we know that in God's law, he sets forth a pattern of substitution, wherein God provides a means by which the ungodly can be saved. 
if they will but put their faith in his provision of the substitute upon which he will pour out his fires of wrath. And then we know that prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah go out of their way to elevate a person who will stand as the substitutionary lamb and receive on behalf of the many the wrath of God. Through this individual, many will be accounted righteous, Isaiah 53, 11. And the righteous one will bear their iniquity. Each of the gospel writers portray the cross event as a time of darkness, using cataclysmic imagery of earthquake and crashing noises and darkness. The very images of the Old Testament day of the Lord. Peter's citation of Joel 2, 30 and 31 in Acts 2, 19 and 20 suggests that Peter himself identified the darkness with what the prophet said would precede the day of the Lord. Jesus is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And thus we should understand that Jesus himself is the sacrifice who stands as the wrath-bearing substitute taking the day of the Lord that was expected at the end of the age. It intrudes into the middle of history upon Christ himself on behalf of the elect. Number two. I believe that we are to recognize that the church fulfills Zephaniah's hopes for a single reconciled community from every tribe and every tongue. If the fires of God's wrath in chapter 3, verse 8, in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed, peoples and powers, the nations and the kingdoms, all those who are in Christ, um, experiencing the wrath of God, him standing as our substitute. If verse 8 indeed refers to the fires of judgment being born on behalf of the elect by Christ himself at the cross, then his resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit that is envisioned in verses 9 and 10 is realized through Christ's resurrection and Pentecost and the rise of the early church. John said, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3. In Jerusalem, Jesus initiated a great second exodus, a great eschatological ingathering. This is how Caiaphas worded it using uh, the exact same language that we have in Zephaniah 3 verse 10. Caiaphas said, he died for the nation of Israel, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered or dispersed abroad. John 11, 51 and 52. The church today, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles in Christ, is fulfilling Zephaniah's vision of the day of the Lord as renewal. One way that this is seen, I believe, is in the book of Acts. <clears throat> the way that Luke depicts the early church's growth, I think, um, identifies that he actually has Zephaniah 3, 8 through 10 on his mind. 
when he crafts the narrative. In the context of explaining a mission of making worshipers to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8, Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 cites Joel 2. As you know, very familiar passage, wherein Joel depicts the day of the Lord and mentions calling on the Lord's name in order to be saved. That phrase, calling on the name Yahweh, is exactly what we also have in Zephaniah 3, verse 9. But what occurs in Zephaniah 3 that does not occur in Joel 2 is any mention of tongues and this focus on a unified people, both of which Luke emphasizes in his narrative. Also significant is that the only region that Zephaniah focuses on for global restoration is Cush. Cush shows up over and over again, Black Africa, in Old Testament nation lists. This makes it all the more strikingly absent from Acts chapter 2 when Luke mentions that peoples from all the nations of the earth had gathered to Jerusalem. And yet, when he lists the nations, what is strikingly missing is any mention of Cush, or what in Greek is Ethiopia. Now, why would Luke not mention Ethiopia? I think it's very likely because he holds off till Acts chapter 8 in order to identify in the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch the fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy. It's the only place that Zephaniah uses to identify his global great uh, ingathering, multi-ethnic transformation. And so he holds off, building off the prediction of the eunuch in Isaiah 56, but the Cushite, uh, that, that from Cush, the, the remnant, this is where God's going to begin his, his global day of the Lord transformation. And so it is that it's an Ethiopian who provides the first example in the book of Acts of this movement from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The first Gentile saved in the book is an Ethiopian. And I think that it's intentionally designed to identify the fulfillment of Zephaniah's promise. Now, with this, in a broader fulfillment of Zephaniah's restoration hope, remember you've got people once dispersed who are now becoming worshipers and bringing an offering to the very presence of God. These are like new transformed priests from every tongue and tribe who are gathering into the presence of God in a transformed Jerusalem. Now, the New Testament is clear that Jesus... This first coming marks the beginning of the end of the old age and the inauguration of the new. It's the dawn of the new creation, which corresponds to the new covenant. In this age, Jews and Gentiles in Christ together make up one people of God, the church, which Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says Jesus is shaping into a kingdom and priests from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So already, we as Christian priests are offering sacrifices of praise, Romans 12, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 2. And where are we doing it? 
Hebrews 12 says we are doing it at Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Nevertheless, we await the day in which the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven and will fill the earth. When our daily journey to find rest in Christ's supremacy and sufficiency will truly find its completion and the curse will be no more. Let's consider then also how the Apostle John alludes to Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. Look down there, Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. In fact, I encourage you to keep a finger in Zephaniah 3 and then turn to John chapter 12, 13 through 15. John 12, 13 through 15. It's a familiar text. Interpreters commonly recognize that John cites Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 in the triumphal entry narrative. We read in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now there's no question that we have here a link with Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. But what's often missed by interpreters is that Psalm 119 does not use the phrase king of Israel. And Zechariah 9, uh, in the opening charge is actually rejoice rather than don't be afraid. So why the change? Christopher Tachik has convincingly argued that John, that the differences here signal that John is actually alluding not only to Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9, but also to Zephaniah 3. The only place in the entire Bible, other than John 12, where the phrase King of Israel, daughter of Zion, and fear not shows up is Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. So what is Zephaniah doing? In Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The king of Israel is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The king of Israel there is Yahweh. But if John is indeed alluding to Zephaniah 3, what it means is that he is envisioning Jesus to be fulfilling Yahweh's eschatological end times reign that was to accompany the day of the Lord. In Christ, Zephaniah's eschatological day of the Lord has dawned. Jesus is the warrior king who is judging the enemy. If you're still in John 12, look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Not only that, right in this context, John is envisioning the, a global ingathering. Look at verses 19 and 20. You see that you are gaining nothing, said the Pharisees. Look, the world has gone after him. Very next verse. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Then verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is indeed the vision that Zephaniah 
has in mind. So in closing, a proper response to the day of the Lord is renewal and the call to wait for him in order to enjoy a satisfying salvation. I have three points in closing. Number one, brothers and sisters, rejoice that the church fulfills Old Testament hopes for a single reconciled community from every tribe and tongue. As part of the day of the Lord, Zephaniah envisions God's blessing of reconciliation reaching the nations. And by this fulfilling the original promises given to Abraham for blessing. This new multi-ethnic people is identified with the new Jerusalem, which God cleanses from all pride and fills with a people humble and lowly who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. This group of faithful from all the nations makes up those who are left in Israel, according to this chapter. When God raises up a messenger to proclaim to the day of the Lord Zion, saying, fear not, it is this multi-ethnic bride, the church, that fills the city. I believe Christ's ministry of healing the lame and caring for the broken inaugurated the, the great ingathering of the lame and the outcast that's envisioned in Zephaniah 3, 19. Now, today is the day when Jesus's followers honor him so that others will see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. So rejoice today that the church is indeed fulfilling Zephaniah's hopes for a single reconciled community from among all the nations. Number two, wait for the Lord. We live in a very beautiful but broken world. Beautiful because this is a creation designed by God, and yet broken because the Adamic curse affects and infects everything. Family celebrations get tempered by car accidents and cancer. Marvelous vistas become contexts for mass executions. City parks where children are supposed to play become places for riots and kidnappings. Disease runs rampant. People lose jobs. The economy goes downhill. The global pandemic of alien guilt continues to infect sinners, making them a people who sin, who don't value God, and who don't value his image in others. Believers today live in the overlap of the ages, the very period that Zephaniah envisioned would be associated with the day of the Lord. We live in a period after the Lord has atoned for the sin of the elect through the death of his son, but before he has eradicated all evil completely and carried out his final judgment. The already aspects require that we call on his name and serve him together, yet the not yet aspects necessitate that we heed Zephaniah's charge to patiently trust the Lord, that is, to wait for him to act, to hold unswervingly to the very one who is promised he will save. Waiting is not easy. There's so many temptations to doubt, temptations to fear, to compromise, to become anxious, yet we must ever remember that if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him 
If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. In the midst of trouble, may we be a people who humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all of our anxieties upon him, confident that he cares for us. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary in well-doing. Before us is a crown of life. Everyone who remains steadfast under trial will receive it. Peter said, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And after you have suffered a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Finally, I encourage you to delight in the Lord, the very one who saves his people from all wrath and all evil, and who is progressively saving us even now from our own sin. We have a God who promises to sing over those he saves, and his mirth-filled melody is to be matched line by line by the rejoicing of his bride and his goodness. Our joy today is not based on present appearances, but on what God has done and what he promises to do on our behalf. Already the Lord has put all things under his feet. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, God has already put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Already God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom has been given to us, such that God is even now truly in our midst. God has already begun to gather his remnant, you and I, people from every tongue and tribe. He's bringing them in. He's already inaugurated the new creation that you and I are a part of, and he's already secured the complete and future victory for which Zephaniah rejoiced. Heeding his own prayer, the faithful Lord Jesus will establish you and guard you against the evil one. The Lord will rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into his eternal kingdom. The writer of Hebrews said, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And as was true for Jesus, the future joy for which we aim becomes our present joy that sustains. The King of Israel and the Mighty One will completely save and sing over those he has redeemed. And he desires to satisfy you and I today with his goodness. Our gladness will redound to his glory. So may we today patiently pursue the Lord together, rejoicing in hope, and embrace, embracing the Savior's invitation to satisfaction. Thank you. Well, brother, thank you so much for bringing before us today uh, what I think has been uh, a superb biblical theology based on solid exegesis, and that's been a, 
uh, a real model for us as we think about our work in the, in the Irish Baptist College uh, and also for all who aspire to preach God's word. And I hope that we've, uh, I'm sure in fact, that we've received a tremendous incentive today to handle uh, the book of Zephaniah uh, in, a, in a faithful way and to seek to apply it uh, astutely to our generation. So that's been great. Thank you so much. I'm going to hand over at this point to uh, Dr. Sarah Dalrymple, uh, who will chair uh, a time of question and answer. Thank you, Sarah. Hello, sister. Hi, Dr. Derushi. Thank you so much. Um, on behalf of everyone uh, here today, we, we'd all love to uh, echo uh, Edwin's words there and thank you for your presentation. So much to think about. And I'm sure there are many questions in uh, everyone's mind that we could be asking. We have a limited time for Q&A, uh, just about 15 minutes. Um, and I have a few questions that have come through. So uh, we'll come to those. But first of all, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question. So I'll, I'll begin. Um, uh, Edwin uh, has just mentioned um, that your presentation is biblically theological. And I wondered if you could just uh, talk to us a little bit about whether uh, and to what extent you see uh, Zephaniah as a biblical theologian uh, in the sense that he's picking up, um, for example, uh, Deuteronomy and without going into all the, the, the question around the discovery of the book of the law and so on in Josiah's time, but echoes of, of, of other books you have alluded to many uh, already, but is there anything else, maybe with particular reference to Deuteronomy, that you'd like to uh, uh, talk to us about? Um, there's Zephaniah's use of it. First Peter 1 verse 10 says that the prophets who spoke about the grace, the saving grace that would be ours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. When it says, I, I don't think this is, this verse, as many commentators say, is focused on what they didn't know. It's actually focused on what they did know and what they were doing and the process they were going about to discover something about the Messiah and when he would come. It says they were searching and inquiring. And this suggests to me that, that part of the way that the Holy Spirit interpreted to the prophets who gave us his word was in the process of their wrestling with biblical texts. Zephaniah is saturated with scripture. I believe he does draw significantly from three books, especially Genesis, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. The, his, his use of Deuteronomy is especially significant because, as you already referred to, the, the book of the law and the discovery in the temple in the days of Josiah um, took uh, Josiah's Reformation movement to a new level. And I think it does inform our reading to recognize that, that Zephaniah is not only citing the book of Deuteronomy through another prophet, but is actually citing Deuteronomy itself. And it suggests even the placement of his message comes uh, toward the end of 622, 
the discovery of the book of the law was found at the beginning of 622 because it initiated in Josiah's 18th year the celebration of the Passover, which is always in the spring. And so as we read Zephaniah, what I'm seeing is um, there's no mention of child sacrifice, which was a key problem under Manasseh and Ammon, um, which suggests that the Reformation movement of Josiah has already been inaugurated. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there's still so much to do and there's still a, a holdout of, of Baal worship in Jerusalem, it, it identifies that things haven't moved along that that far. Now, with respect to his use of Deuteronomy, um, a key part that he draws from there is the curses in the book. And um, so I understand Zephaniah to be a covenant enforcer. Within the context of the Mosaic covenant, he enters in as a mouthpiece of God to call the people back through his indictments identifying their sin problem through his instruction, urging them to seek the Lord. And then through the, the detailed unpacking of curse, he is, is calling them to realign themselves with a pure, which I believe is always messianic, Yahwism. And uh, to truly hope in uh, the one who is to come and to surrender themselves to uh, the God of the covenant. And then he also uses Deuteronomy, uh, specifically drawing on Deuteronomy 30, when he's portraying the age of renewal, the, res the restoration of their fortunes, as it's rendered in the ESV, is, is right out of Deuteronomy 30, just before the mention of the circumcised heart. It's part of what God says he will do. He's going to, to uh, return their original situation, which is a context of blessing rather than curse. So there's this movement of reversal, of, um, of decreation, and of covenant curse that is going to give rise, and Moses already envisioned this, going to give rise to an age of, of transformation. And I believe Moses envisioned it to be associated with a prophet like him. And, and I understand Deuteronomy 18, um, 15 through 19, to not be anticipating a, a chain of prophets, but I actually believe it to be anticipating a single prophet. It, can, it compares that the prophet that is going to come is going to be one who, like, um, who, who's going to have some connection with how Moses was set apart at Mount Sinai as a covenant mediator. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, none of them are covenant mediators. We're anticipating a specific prophet, and in his day, he who this, this very one who, according to Deuteronomy 18, has the word of God upon his own heart. Um, his, his tongue uh, is proclaiming the word of God. It's, that, it's, it's the day that he was going to come that is being realized, I believe, in Zephaniah 3. Um, it may be that Zephaniah never mentions the Messiah because uh, it's, it's part of his rhetorical means of identifying how dark Judah had become. And yet, um, he draws on texts that are saturated with messianic hope. And I believe that, um, like Peter says, he is indeed among the prophets who proclaimed the days of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. 
you've answered several questions <laughs> all at once there, uh, Jason. So thank you for that. Another question that, that I had in mind was that uh, apparent absence of, of uh, a messianic figure, but um, uh, may, need, may not be explicit in Zephaniah, but, but all the allusions are there and, and we, can, we can draw the links. Um, there are some other some other questions here that that uh, folks have have uh, submitted. Um, one concerns the uh, the point that you made about the goal of the day of the Lord as re-establishing Sabbath rest, um, and uh, the questioner uh, wonders if you could give a brief summary of your reasoning behind that. As I read the way that Moses speaks about the original seventh-day rest of God. His rest was not one of laziness. It was one of sovereignty. He sat down on his throne and rested. He was at peace with his world. What happens at the fall is not that his sovereignty gets set aside, but that the, the peace, the right order in the world gets disrupted. And so, as Jesus says, he and his father are working once again to reestablish right order in the world. The way that Moses sets up Sabbath as the sign of the Israelite covenant suggests to me that Israel's six plus one pattern was identified with the very essence of their mission. That is that Every week they were be remi being reminded that they as a people, a kingdom that, that was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they were to be that for the sake of the nations. And that as I believe Genesis anticipates, a single male seed from the woman would rise. And when he did, that would be the definitive alteration point in redemptive history when Abraham would move from being a father of one nation to a father of a multitude of nations. It would come in the days of the Messiah. Now, what that is, is a reestablishment of global order and global peace. That is a reestablishment of Sabbath. Built into Israel's existence was the idea that they were living in order to see the reign of God and global peace realized on a global scale. What was true for them in a, a micro way, six plus one, six plus one, and then the sabbatical years and jubilee, it was all um, eschatologically driven, awaiting the day when universal peace, that is Sabbath rest, would be realized. And within scripture, that day is associated with what we call Yahweh's day or the Lord's day. And on Sunday, the New Testament focuses on Sunday morning, on Sunday as the Lord's Day, because it was this day that new creation was seen to have dawned. It was this day that Jesus' declaration, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, that it, it comes into space and time, that Jesus' followers are all of a sudden following a risen, triumphed king who has all authority in heaven and on earth those who are in christ now that is who have entered into the day of the lord are enjoying sabbath rest already not just one day a week 
but seven days a week. And one day a week we celebrate, gather together in order to remind ourselves what is true 24-7. But we are still awaiting the culminating of Sabbath. The day of the Lord is none other than the culmination of creation reaching its goal of Sabbath rest. And so that, that's at least my, my summary of how I understand Sabbath realized. Um, you and I are enjoying, I believe, Sabbath already, but we're anticipating its final realization, and, and it's directly associated with the inauguration of the day of the Lord and the consummation of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is nothing other than the Lord's day being worked out in space and time. It's a day first of enemies being overcome, and then a day of transformation and renewal. That's what Sabbath is. It's a reconstitution of right order with God on the throne and at peace with his world. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, uh, ex explanation and that expansion of, of what you said earlier. Um, just to, our time is running out. We've just got a few minutes left, but um, perhaps a couple of uh, uh, more more practical questions. Um, first of all, um, someone has asked, uh, what pace would you recommend preaching or at what pace would you recommend preaching through Zephaniah? And uh, are there any other tips or things to be aware of when preaching through this book? So how would you approach preaching it? How would you break it down uh, and, and so on? I have taught the book in one hour. I have preached the book in five messages and I've um, preached the book in 15 messages. Hmm. But for starters, I, I think it's a great book because it's not super huge. Thinking about prophets can often intimidate our people today, um, but I strongly encourage giving more than one message to a book like Zephaniah. Uh, I think it, it fits very uh, well with a five-message um, sermon where you could do verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 18 in chapter 1, then chapter 2, 1 through 3, 7, and, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, 1 through 4, then chapter 2, 5 uh, through 3, 7, and then chapter 3, um, three eight. 8 through 10, and 11 through 20. Um, I, I actually drafted, let me see if I can find it easily, um, some titles for potential sermons. Um, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not finding it here. Um, in, the, in the opening of my, in the introduction to my ESV commentary, which is my shorter 50-page commentary on Zephaniah, in there I have a brief section on preaching Zephaniah, and I give five different uh, potential titles for sermons. Um, but it's, it's simply walking through the book. 
I think it is so, it would be so helpful for people. Our goal is we want, we want people to learn how to read the prophets and to read them, I believe, as Jesus and his apostles were reading them um, as words that are about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so guiding them through, uh, much like I just did in the last two hours with you, guiding them through a message of dread and hope that has Jesus right at the center. Um, it, it gives people a greater lens for understanding how these prophets indeed have lasting message for us today. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writing, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.